Good morning. See all these pink tabs on my Bible? Each one is one of the scriptures we'll be looking at today. So you're going to need your books at the ready if you brought them or electronic devices. We are starting at the very, good, at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. And we're looking at a massive number of verses today. It's uh, 2, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the divinely inspired Word of God. And Lord, we ask that you quicken your Word into our hearts, that you take away anything that's of man, that's of flesh, that's worldly or my own opinion, and you just let sink into our hearts your truth this morning. Amen. So, over the next few weeks we are going to be studying Genesis, which in some circles is probably one of the most controversial books of the Bible. And especially when we consider things like the creation accounts, and we encounter some strong and conflicting opinions about the meaning and the interpretation of the words that we find here. Because this is such a minefield, before I say a single word about the text, let's agree some ground rules, some rules of engagement, if you like. So Freedom Church is part of New Frontiers, the group, and it's what you might call an orthodox church, that's orthodox not with a capital O like the Russian Orthodox or Eastern Orthodox Church, but Orthodox with a little O in the sense that we hold an Orthodox, a widely accepted understanding of the Christian faith. And we believe what's taught by Scripture. So every person who stands up here to preach must agree on one absolutely non-negotiable principle. And that is that the Bible is the inspired Word of God and that it's true. Someone who doesn't believe that has got no business preaching in this church. Is that fair? Psalm 119.160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. That's Psalm 119 verse 160. So the, the first ground rule for this series of sermons is... We accept Genesis as truth. We're not going to argue about that. It's a given. It's end of discussion, at least for this sermon. God is God, and his version of truth is the only version of the truth. We honor him, and we honor his word. If you'd like to discuss the whole doctrine of the truth of Scripture, I'm happy to do that. But that's for another sermon, or maybe for a conversation over coffee. Lots of coffee. Okay, so that's the first principle set. The Bible is true. Then we come to us. We are frail, limited human beings. Now, some people may think themselves to be exceptionally clever, not me, obviously, able to decode the most complex of mysteries, and the news I have for those people is they're not very clever, not compared to God, anyway. In Titus 3, um, Titus 3, 9 to 11, the Apostle Paul's got some 
pretty stern words of instruction for us. And remember that it's Paul, he's the one that God chose to use to bring the good news of Jesus to us, the Gentiles. So Paul has virtually unparalleled insight into the things of God. Titus 3, 9 to 11. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So, in studying Genesis, we are not going to engage in foolish controversies. We're not going to stir up division, at least I hope not. We're conscious of our own limitations. And we need to be aware of the fact that we are wrongly prone to believe the evidence of our own eyes. We are prone to misunderstand things. So imagine you're looking at a photograph, right? And on the left-hand side of the photograph, there's a rough-looking man, you know, a bit like me. Shouldn't be too hard to imagine. And he's got his arms outstretched like this. And then on the right-hand side of the photograph, there's this well-dressed, good-looking woman, someone a bit like my wife, still not sure how I've managed to pull that one off. And she's falling into the road, into the path of an oncoming car, right? And the second we look at this photograph, the evidence of our eyes tells us that the man is trying to harm the woman. He's pushed her into the road, right? But if we were to see a video of the same situation, we might see that, in fact, the man was reaching out to rescue the woman, to pull her out of the path of the vehicle. So our, our first judgment, based on what we thought we saw, based on what we thought was obvious, our first judgment about the man was wrong. So my point is, we might say, seeing is believing. We may be inclined to believe that what we see is truth, and the only truth, but we can be dead wrong. We all have limited vision, limited insight. None of us sees a complete picture. Only God does. We don't have all the facts. And we don't know what we don't know. Uh, these, these are the things that Donald Rumsfeld called the unknown unknowns. You might be familiar with that quote. 1 Corinthians 3.19 says, 1 Corinthians 3.19 for the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. The wisdom, the very best thinking that mankind has to offer, that's just foolishness compared to real wisdom, to God's wisdom. So, ground rule number two, we accept that our own understanding can be fundamentally flawed. Ground rule number one, we accept Genesis is true. And ground rule number two, we accept our understanding is flawed. Agreed. Okay. So let's begin. <laughs> first, what do we know about Genesis? So Genesis is the first book of the very first version of the Bible, which was a collection of books that was known as the Torah, which means instruction, or later it was known as the Pentateuch, which means five scrolls. So there were five books in this Bible, this collection. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 
And the word Genesis means origin. So this book tells us of the origin of the human race, where our history starts. And I imagine that many people think of Genesis as exactly that, a story about our origins. You may think that, but it isn't. Genesis is not a book about the origin of the human race. That's not the most important message, at least. Now, I hope you're listening carefully, because this point is extremely important. It can change the way you read Genesis completely. Pay close attention now. Genesis is not about us. First and foremost, Genesis is about God. Do you see the difference? And what is the Bible if not God's personal revelation to us of himself? So our Bibles, all 66 books collected together as we receive them now, they start with Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God, and they end with Revelation 22.21, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all Amen. So God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, they're all, they're all God. From start to finish, the Bible is about God. God is the central character, the protagonist, you might say, in this story. This book does not revolve around us. It's not our history. It's his story. So we could approach Genesis, especially the early creation chapters, and say to ourselves, what does this tell us about ourselves? How does this measure up against our understanding of the universe? But we're missing the best part if we do that. We're eating the sponge cake, but not the cream and jam in the middle. There's a biscuit part of a custard cream without the yummy vanilla center. This book is about who God is, what he's done, how he made us, how he gave us free will, tolerated our abuse, and set in motion a plan to redeem us, to rescue us, to save us. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. So if you see that, you can then begin to understand this book of Genesis to see its purpose. So, to the first verse then. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning. Uh, reams and reams of paper have been written on the meaning of this phrase. What does it mean, in the beginning? The beginning of what? The beginning of time, some say. The beginning of God's work of creation, others say. The time when God made the earth out of things that already existed, still others say. Or the beginning of this story of God's interaction with mankind. And many say, the Bible's a fairy tale. It doesn't matter what it means. To understand this phrase, let's extend it by one word. In the beginning, God. So we've agreed that God is a central character in the Bible. It's God's handiwork we see woven through all the chapters here. It's God who sets things in motion, God who gives direction to history, and it's God who writes the plot. What do we know about this God? So in the, in the original manuscript... The Hebrew word that's used in this verse for God is Elohim. Elohim is quite an interesting word. It's interesting because it's plural. There's a sense of many about it, but it's used 
with singular verbs. So how does that work? This is not a grammar lesson, by the way. Don't worry. Here's a comparison. People, that's a plural word, isn't it? And so we'd normally say things like, people go to the supermarket. People do their laundry. People are peculiar. People wonder why Rob jabbers on so much. But if you pair people with singular verbs, you get people goes to the supermarket. People does his laundry. People is peculiar, and so on. Do you see? And this is how Elohim is used. God is both singular and plural. That's a bit difficult to understand, isn't it? But that's the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one in three persons foreshadowed right there in the first verse of Genesis. In the beginning, God. What else do we know about God? Let's have a look at Psalm 90, verse 2. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So God's from everlasting to everlasting, from eternity past to eternity future. Can you imagine what eternity is like? Something going on and on forever? Some might say that by the end of this sermon, you'll have a very good idea of what forever feels like. But no, I'll try not to go on quite that long. I don't think we can imagine eternity. We can't comprehend it. We're limited. We're finite beings. We don't have anything in our heads to compare eternity with. We have no frame of reference. So you've got, for want of a better word, a timeline called eternity, and it stretches infinitely backwards and infinitely forwards, and somewhere on that timeline, you have in the beginning. And does that mean that before the beginning, there was no such thing as time? Or does it mean that the beginning is just the beginning of history? Is that beginning 6,000 years ago? 4 billion years ago? Infinite years ago? I don't know. And I'm going to dare to say that I don't think it matters all that much. What matters is that we have an eternal God who sets history in motion. In the beginning, God. Now there's another very familiar passage that begins with a phrase, in the beginning, and I don't think we can properly study or understand Genesis 1 without also looking at John 1. So let's turn there now. John 1. Firstly, verses 1 to 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's talking about Jesus. One of the names for Jesus is the Word. He's the living embodiment of the things that God says. The Word is power. The Word is direction. The Word is creative force. The Word is the means through which God's will is enacted. The Greek here is logos. Logos, the eternal Word of God in action. And I'm sure we'll see in later sermons in this series how God speaks things into being through the Word. Then John 1 verse 3 says, All things were made through him, that's Jesus, the logos, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, as I say, some of this is for another sermon. So, 
Suffice it to say for now that we have, at the beginning, God the Father working with and through Jesus Christ the Son. In the beginning, God. Let's add one more word. We will get to the end, I promise. I'm not going to just do it one word at a time, every time. In the beginning, God created. Wow. The first interaction we see in this history of God is creation. That's amazing. What does that tell us about God? It tells me he's full of life, full of energy, full of industry. God creates. That's a profound truth about God. If God wasn't a creative being, you wouldn't be here. None of us would. So this is one of those supposedly tough questions that science and philosophy try to answer. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing? Think about it. You write a thousand-word essay. No, you don't have to. It's all right. What is it that caused me to exist, ultimately? Well, they say, your mum and your dad, they decided to start a family, and to cut a long story short, that's why you're here. Okay, but what about how they came to exist? Or their parents, or their parents' parents? And if we, co- if we keep going back far enough, eventually they say, well, there was this primordial soup, you know. Soup, just bubbling away randomly. Okay, I say... But where did the soup come from? Oh, well, there was this big bang and everything was really hot. And then when everything cooled down to about soup temperature, you had all these planets with all these big old vats of soup. Okay, so where did the big bang come from? I don't know, they say. It just did. It just did. That's a statement of faith right there. Why is there something rather than nothing that just is. I'll tell you why there's something rather than nothing. It's simple, really. No PhD required to understand this. It's because God is a creative being and he chose to create us. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, 1-3, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what does that mean, the heavens and the earth? It's pretty simple, really. It's just one of those Hebrew expressions. It means everything. So there's some differing views on this, and again, some very technical studies on this phrase, which, frankly, I haven't got the patience to read. Um, So let's make it easy and say, where else do we see this phrase? So just quickly, where else do we see the phrase, heavens and the earth? Genesis 2.1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And Jeremiah 23.24, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. It means everything, the whole universe In the beginning, God created the universe. So there wasn't stuff there waiting for him to shape into a particular arrangement. He created it all from nothing. If you were posh, you might say ex nihilo. But I'm obviously not posh, so let's go with from nothing. 
God made the entire universe from nothing. If you pardon the expression, how on earth did he do that? Back to John 1.3, all things were made through him. That's Jesus, the Logos, the living word. And without him was not anything made that was made. So all things, the entire universe was created through Christ. He was a bit more than a simple carpenter, wasn't he? But turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And verses 15 to 20. So we're going to link today's sermon about Genesis chapter 1 with last week's celebration of the resurrection of Christ. And hopefully you'll see how these two sermons fit together beautifully. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He is the image, that's Jesus again, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in a, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So at the start of history, God begins with creating everything through Christ. And he's pointing the whole of history in one direction. So like an archer with an arrow on the string... At creation, he's pointing to the target, to the cross. And creation happens, the arrow's in flight, and through its flight, it takes in the fall of man, the constant railing, the battling against the rule of God, until ultimately it hits its target. God created everything through Christ, knowing full well that every person would need to be remade through Christ by virtue of his sacrifice on the cross. Acts 17.28 says, For in him we live and move and have our being. He made us. He sustains us. As we repent, as we turn away from our sin, our rebellion against God, he remakes us. But the great thing, this arrow doesn't just stop at its target, the cross. It continues flight unto another target. It shatters the first target and carries on. The final target is the second coming of Christ the full and final rise of the kingdom of God. And then, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. For we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So the full flight of this arrow... The full story of God's creation goes like this. In the beginning, God creates everything, including us, through Christ. Then we are remade through the death and resurrection of Christ. Our sins are washed away, we're made righteous. And then, when Christ returns, we are made like him. Three creative steps, all through Christ. We are made, 
We are made clean. We are made like him. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What an evocative verse. Some translations read, the Spirit of God was brooding over the waters. So I mentioned the Trinity before. And all you need to begin to assemble a doctrine of the Trinity is the first two verses of Genesis and the first two verses of John. Between them, you've got God the Father, the Created, the Creator, Jesus the Son through whom everything was created, and God the Holy Spirit, the ever-present and all-encompassing. And it could take a whole sermon on its own to flesh that out more. For now, I think it's so wonderful that we have this mystery laid out for us, this mind-blowing concept of God as one in three persons. Now, the earth was without form and void. Uh, We don't have a lot to go on to understand that phrase. It only occurs once more in the Old Testament in Jeremiah chapter 4. Let's turn there now. Jeremiah chapter 4. So, uh, Jeremiah's one of the so-called major prophets, major in the sense that the book's fairly big. You'll find it just over midway through the Bible. Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Jeremiah, for the context, is we've got Israel split into two. The northern kingdom, which is almost constantly rebelling, rebelling against God, and the southern kingdom, which mostly rebels against God, but has a few stretches where they keep their noses, noses a bit cleaner. And Jer- Jeremiah is prophesying to the northern kingdom what's going to happen to them if they don't turn from their evil ways. Uh, down at verse 22, we see this. Jeremiah 4, 22 to 24. For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good they know not. I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void. And to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains and behold, they were quaking and all the hills moved to and fro. And the sense that we get from this phrase without form and void is there's a lack of order. There's substance, but no form. A great big amorphous blob, you might say. But enough about me. In this Jeremiah, you're very sleepy this morning. In this Jeremiah passage, the statement of judgment and punishment, we have a vision of the earth returns to its early form before God started to shape it and to bring life. And that's the state that the earth was in right at the start in verse 2 of Genesis 1. We don't get a lot of description because, frankly, it probably would have been very hard to describe. There's no no order here, no life, for the God of the universe is about about to bring both. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Okay, darkness was over the face of the deep. I don't think that's complicated, particularly. There was water, lots of water, and it was dark. Simple as that. Uh, But for a a bit more insight into this part of the Earth's history, we can refer to the book of Job. Now, Job is a really interesting book in its own right. I'm not sure how familiar you are with it. It's the story of this righteous man, Job, and God approves of Job and blesses him. 
And one day, Satan says to God, that Job fellow, he's only holy because of all the stuff you've given him. Take it all away, and you'll soon see what he's made of. Watch him curse you to your face. Now, clearly, God doesn't have to rise to this sort of childish taunt, and he certainly isn't going to let Satan manipulate him. But God's got an incredible purpose in everything he does. And part of his purpose in the story of Job is to leave this book as a witness to God's power, his majesty, his holiness, his mercy, and his grace. You'll find all of that in this book. So God allows Satan to afflict Job. And over the course of this story, Job loses everything. Wealth, possessions, his business, his staff, even his family are taken away from him. And after all these calamities, a bunch of Job's friends, they spend some time with him. And on the face of it, they're trying to comfort him. But they also give him some very, very bad advice. Hence the expression, Job's comforters. And towards the end of the story, Job starts to break. And he talks about all the good that he's done. And how he's a righteous man. It's a sort of, what have I done to deserve this approach? Chapter 32, verse 1 says, so these three men, those are the comforters, they ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Righteous in his own eyes. I'll give you a hint that uh, that's the sort of lofty self-praise that doesn't impress God. And finally, in the closing chapters of Job, God speaks. And the purpose of God's speech isn't to justify his choices to Job or to explain why he allowed Job to go through all that suffering. No, let's listen to how and why God responds. This is an excellent passage to remind us of our lowliness and God's magnificence for us to know our place. And it will bring us back to the opening verses of Genesis. So let's turn to this passage. Job chapter 38. Job's just before the middle of the Bible. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs. Job 38, 1 to 11. And um, brace yourself for this, because Job is, God is talking to us just as much as he was talking to Job. Job 38, 1 to 11. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this? that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or stretched its, the line upon it, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Aren't you glad you weren't hearing that direct from God? You'd be quite stern, can't he? And in this passage, where 
where Job, where we are put in our places, we have this wonderfully poetic description of the dawn of creation. God says, I made clouds the earth's garments and thick darkness its swaddling band. Now back to that snippet from Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Thick darkness, its swaddling band. The swaddling bands are wrapping for babies, right? There's a real sense that the act of creation was a birthing of something new for God. And perhaps that's why the second half of Genesis 1-2 is sometimes translated, the Spirit of God was brooding over the waters. It's brooding like a woman over a pregnancy. Now, if you've been a Christian a long time, you might be listening to this sermon today thinking, yeah, yeah, I know all this. All I'd ask is that you spend some time dwelling on what this story tells us about God. That's the whole purpose here today. What sort of power is required to bring a universe into existence? What sort of foresight is needed to see ahead of time the sin of mankind and to use Jesus Christ as the means through which these sinful people will be created and the future means through which these sinful people will be saved? What sort of love and care is it that views the beginning of creation with the same tender care, no more tender care than a new mother shows to her baby? What sort of God is it that allows us to dare to criticize and challenge him and who restrains himself from smiting us immediately? Which of us in God's place would show such patience and forbearance? What sort of God is it who, needing nothing, still decides to create the human race so that these creatures may have the opportunity to worship God and to enjoy his presence forever? What sort of God is it who is so thoroughly invested in this process of creation that he involves every member of the Godhead in it, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? What sort of God is it who, knowing the arrogant challenges that will later be made, gives us his precious word, the Bible, to show what he has done? What sort of God is it that allows us to believe whatever foolishness we want? What sort of God is it who gives us all the answers we would ever need? What sort of God is it who makes himself available to us personally through the work of Jesus Christ and the permanent indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. This is our God. This is the message of creation. This is the message of salvation. May his name be praised eternally. Amen.